Hey everyone, this is Cody Turner. So this is a standalone solo episode in which I talk about the philosophy of consciousness. My plan moving forward is to eventually create another podcast which is completely devoted to independent commentary and solo episodes like this. And that podcast will be included within the Shelter from the Storm network. Then the network will actually count as a network because there'll be more than one podcast in it. So eventually I'll just have... 10 Talks, which will be completely devoted to interviews and conversations, and then the other podcast, which will be independent commentary. But for now, I'll include this solo episode within 10 Talks. One other thing worth mentioning is I'm hoping that future solo episodes are less rigid than this one. As you'll be able to tell, this was pretty much completely written in its entirety beforehand, and I'm just reading it off. I'm planning for future solo episodes to be more off the dome, stream of consciousness style, but informed by some research. But like I said, for now, this is a good experiment, and I think I will include it here. So, without further ado, I give you the philosophy of consciousness. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm podcast network. A place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. And a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. A vivid impression of a sunset, the taste of warm coffee, the sound of my voice right now, or of an airplane whizzing by, or of your own inner speech in your head. The mental imagery that flashes in your mind when I tell you to imagine a fire truck. The anxiety that courses through your veins before a big test. The ecstasy that appears to explode from your body at the moment of an orgasm. All of these experiences are a part of your conscious life. Hello, this is Cody Turner, and welcome to Intellectual Downpour number two. In this episode, I discuss the philosophy of consciousness. Consciousness really lies at the center of my philosophical interests. My mind undoubtedly has an affinity for fundamental questions. I think this is one of the main reasons I am so attracted to philosophy, and to the study of consciousness in particular. For philosophy is the discipline that tackles the most fundamental questions in life, and questions about consciousness are among the deepest questions one can explore. Consciousness also is the area of philosophy that I've conducted the most research in. I wrote my honors thesis at the College of William and Mary on a position within the philosophy of mind known as panpsychism, which holds that consciousness is ubiquitous, or in a sense everywhere. I'll say a few words about panpsychism at the end, but will save the majority of my thoughts about the view for another episode. The goal here is just to provide an introduction to the philosophy of consciousness. Now, it is my hope that the content in this episode is accessible to anyone who is intellectually curious even to people that have no previous acquaintance with the formal study of consciousness, especially to those people, in fact. You know, philosophy articles published in academic journals are often so laden with jargon that they are inaccessible not just to the average Joe, but even to other professional philosophers that do not work in the immediate subfield that the article is published in. Now don't get me wrong, jargon is necessary in academia, especially in philosophy. Philosophy deals with such abstract concepts and involves so many nuances and fine-grained dialectical moves that it is essential to introduce specialized terms so as to clearly carve up the conceptual landscape. Moreover, 
Familiarizing oneself with the relevant jargon is just a part of what it means to become fluent in a field of study. Every academic discipline has its own language game that one must learn. I get that, but too much jargon can get in the way of clear thinking and writing. The frequent use of fancy technical terminology is not always indicative of sophisticated thought. Often the opposite is the case. As Albert Einstein once said, quote, if you cannot explain it simply, you do not understand it well enough, end quote. Too much jargon, I think, can also repel people that would otherwise be interested in the discipline. Trust me, I know many people who are ostensibly attracted to philosophy, but are unwilling to engage with professional philosophy articles because of the semantic barrier that is immediately imposed by the deluge of jargon that awaits them in the articles. One of the aims of this podcast is to bring philosophy back down to earth, to make philosophy cool, if you will, and to do so without sacrificing any of the profundity or nuance involved in the ideas that I communicate. In other words, the goal here is not to dumb philosophy down, but rather to convey complex philosophical ideas in an accessible manner. Now, you can be the judge of whether or not I actually achieve this goal. I inevitably use some jargon here, but I make a concerted effort to define all relevant terms. So let's get started. Perhaps the main reason I decided to go to graduate school in philosophy was to explore in further depth the nature of consciousness. As it happens, human beings as a whole are still almost completely in the dark about the nature of consciousness. Our collective ignorance with respect to the phenomenon is actually astonishing. In fact, Consciousness is so mysterious to us at this point in history that there is not even agreement over what the concept of consciousness refers to. Now, broadly speaking, consciousness can be defined as the subjective experience of the mind or the world, right? Or, in more poetic terms, as the inner movie in the head. The list of experiences that I open the show with, for example, are all a part of your inner movie or your subjective experience. Beyond this vague description, however, consciousness is incredibly elusive. The elusiveness of the phenomenon renders the term consciousness highly ambiguous. The problem is that any starting definition of consciousness runs the risk of making unwarranted assumptions about its nature. Fortunately, however, there is one starting definition that has caught traction in analytic philosophy over the past 40 years or so. This definition of consciousness derives from the philosopher Thomas Nagel, and in particular derives from his landmark 1974 essay entitled, What is it like to be a bat? According to Nagel, an entity is conscious if and only if there is something it is like to be it, or something that it feels like from the first-person point of view to be it. Call this the what-it's-likeness definition of consciousness. According to this definition, a bat is conscious if and only if there's something it is like to be a bat. The same point applies to insects, artificial intelligence systems that we may create in the future, and indeed to any entity that may or may not be conscious. Basically, if an entity possesses a point of view or perspective on the world, if it feels like something to be the entity from the inside, then the entity is conscious. Imagine, for example, that I switch places with a bat in a sort of weird Freaky Friday scenario. If switching places with the bat is not synonymous with the lights going off, 
or with complete darkness on my part. Then the bat is conscious because the bat has a point of view that I could inhabit if I were able to switch places with it. When I speak of consciousness in this episode, I will be using the term in this what it's likeness sense that comes from Nagel. Now, another helpful starting definition of consciousness that I think is worth mentioning comes from the philosopher John Searle. Searle says, quote, By consciousness, I mean those states of sentience or awareness that typically begin when we wake up in the morning from a dreamless sleep and continue through the day until we fall asleep again. End quote. I think Searle's definition here closely aligns with Nagel's, what it's likeness definition. For there's arguably something it is like to be me only when I am awake or dreaming, right? There's ostensibly nothing it is like to be me when I am in a dreamless slumber. Okay, now that the definition of consciousness is on the table, I'd like to turn to the two main topics of discussion for this episode, what I call the primacy of consciousness and what has been called the hard problem of consciousness. To help me introduce these two topics, I'd like to quote the NYU philosopher David Chalmers, who happens to be my favorite contemporary philosopher, and the one who has influenced my thinking the most on this topic. Chalmers perfectly encapsulates what I mean by the primacy and the hard problem of consciousness when he says, quote, Consciousness is at once the most familiar thing in the world and the most mysterious. There is nothing we know about more directly than consciousness, but it is extraordinarily hard to reconcile it with everything else we know, end quote. When Chalmers says here that consciousness is the most familiar thing in the world, he's referring to what I just called the primacy of consciousness. And, as you might anticipate, when he talks about it being the most mysterious thing in the world, he is referring to what I called the hard problem of consciousness. I'd like to consider the primacy of consciousness first, before turning to the hard problem. In what sense is consciousness primary? There are actually a couple of different ways in which consciousness can be understood to be primary. One way to cash out the idea is to claim, as Chalmers does, that there is nothing we know about more directly than consciousness. Another way is to acknowledge that consciousness is in a sense everything, for it is the medium through which we experience the world. Indeed, the only place for an experience to appear is within consciousness. What's more, consciousness is the one thing the existence of which cannot be doubted. This is precisely what Descartes meant when he wrote his famous phrase, which you've certainly heard if you've taken any introductory to philosophy class, cogito ergo sum which means, I think, therefore I am. I can think that I am skiing, but not really be skiing, right? For I could be dreaming that I am skiing, but I cannot think that I am thinking, but not really be thinking. Just think about that for a sec. Indeed, it is possible that I am living in the matrix, right? And that the entire external world as I know it does not actually exist. But I cannot doubt the fact that I am conscious, or that... There is something it is like to be me in this moment. There undoubtedly appears to be an external world, and that appearance just is consciousness. Consciousness, then, is what you might call epistemically infallible, which is to say, again, it's the one thing the existence of which cannot be doubted. Now, a final sense in which consciousness is primary can be found in the fact that you can never escape the confines of your own consciousness. 
It is this fundamental truth concerning each person's respective mental imprisonment that gives rise to what is known as the problem of other minds in philosophy, which is, given that you can never truly get into another person's mind, right, and experience what it is like to be them directly, how do you know that other minds exist? Strictly speaking, you only have direct access to your own mind. And so, it is possible that your mind is the only thing that exists, and that other people are really just projections of your consciousness. This position is called solipsism, and is, as you might guess, really an untenable view that no serious philosopher endorses. I know that I am conscious, and other people have brains that are structurally identical to mine. Other people also manifest intelligent behavior similar to mine, which suggests that they are, like me, conscious. Given these facts, it is only reasonable to infer the existence of other minds, even if one can never acquire direct evidence of their existence. Besides, solipsism really just is a demonstrably absurd position in my book. How does the old solipsist joke go again? Oh yeah. Hey, I'm a solipsist, and frankly, I'm surprised there aren't more of us. You get it? It's safe to say, then, that I do not think the problem of other minds is that deep of a concern. The fact that there is a problem of other minds, however, again, illustrates the primacy of consciousness. To repeat, every experience you've ever had has been filtered through your stream of consciousness. This includes your experience of other minds and of other people and your experience of an external world. Consciousness always comes first. This principle applies to everything, even to science. In fact, I think it might be helpful to talk about science for a second, actually. The goal of science, or at least one of the goals, is to provide us with an objective characterization of the world, right? Or tell us what the world is actually like. Crudely put, scientists systematically probe the universe in order to record what the universe delivers back, which is to say, they devise testable hypotheses, run empirical experiments to test said hypotheses, and then document the results of these experiments. In this way, scientists seek to transcend their individual biases and paint an objective picture of the world. A noble goal. And a goal that has led to a plethora of intellectual and technological progress, and greatly increased our understanding of the universe, especially over the last couple of centuries. But it is worth pointing out that true objectivity is nonetheless unattainable. As Thomas Nagel famously remarked, it is impossible to occupy the view from nowhere, right? Even if one could adopt the perspective of the universe, so to speak, one would still be inhabiting a point of view, albeit a sort of universal or transcendent point of view. To make this point a bit more concrete, think about the running of empirical experiments in science. Every empirical experiment is inevitably filtered through the subjective consciousness of the scientist or scientists that are running the experiment. Indeed, the entire enterprise of science is ultimately conducted by individual human beings, each of whose consciousness is fundamentally isolated from everyone else's. Now, while these individual people can approximate objectivity, or the view from nowhere, via science, they can never genuinely achieve it, because again, subjectivity is inescapable. In reality, then, 
all science really provides us with is an intersubjective perspective of the universe, not a truly objective one. This truth, concerning the epistemological limitations of science, plays a prominent role in my thinking about the nature of consciousness and reality. Many contemporary philosophers, if not a majority, endorse what the philosopher Philip Goff calls methodological naturalism. According to methodological naturalism, and I'm quoting Goff here, the lesson we would draw from the success of natural science is that we should look to, and only to, the third-person scientific method, that is, rigorous empirical investigation of what is publicly observable, to tell us what reality is like. End quote. Many philosophers of mind take a methodologically naturalistic view of this sort with respect to consciousness, which is to say, they think consciousness can be wholly explained in terms of the properties invoked by science. Upholding this view is synonymous with endorsing the physicalist solution to the hard problem of consciousness. We'll get to all that in a second. For now, I would just like to highlight that I am not a methodological naturalist, precisely because I take seriously the primacy of consciousness. To be clear, I respect the explanatory power of science, of course, and think that any philosophical theory of consciousness ought to cohere with what current science tells us about the brain. But I also understand that there are explanatory feats that even science is incapable of. For instance, as we just discussed, science is unable to truly characterize the view from nowhere. To summarize what was just said, I briefly ruminated upon the primacy of consciousness, which led to a brief discussion of solipsism and the problem of other minds, as well as commentary on the epistemological limitations of science and the view known as methodological naturalism. I would like to now turn to the hard problem of consciousness, which is, notably, what piqued my interest in the philosophy of mind in the first place. The person most responsible for the current formulation of the hard problem in philosophy is David Chalmers, who has already been mentioned in this episode. Chalmers distinguishes the hard problem from what he calls the easy problems of consciousness. The easy problems of consciousness refer to those problems that are explicitly about behavior and functioning in the brain, which is to say, those problems that are about the objective mechanisms of the cognitive system. For example, explaining how human beings are able to discriminate sensory stimuli in their environment and respond accordingly, or explaining how we verbally express the contents of our internal states, or how we integrate information from different inputs. All of these are easy problems of consciousness in Chalmers' book, because they all denote different kinds of behavior and functioning in the brain, which means explaining them is ultimately just a matter of identifying objective processes that occur in the brain. Chalmers does, to be clear, acknowledge that these problems are difficult to solve. Neuroscience has, in fact, not made that much headway in a lot of these so-called easy problems. But Chalmers insists that there is nothing mysterious about the easy problems. The easy problems are easy because they clearly fall within the standard methods of the brain and cognitive sciences, meaning that we have a clear sense of what the research program is when it comes to solving them. Explaining how the brain discriminates information, for example, merely involves finding a neural mechanism that is responsible for this behavior in the brain. The same cannot be said with respect to the hard problem of consciousness. The hard problem can be posed as the following question. Why is there something it is like from the inside to be a brain? 
What makes the hard problem hard is that it does not seem to be a problem about behavior or functioning. I could explain all of my behavioral responses to a given stimulus and explain how my brain monitors and controls itself. And indeed, I could solve all of the easy problems of consciousness and still have no idea why there is something it is like to be a brain or why neural mechanisms in my brain are associated with consciousness. Why don't all the relevant brain processes take place in the dark, so to speak, in the absence of conscious experience? That is, why are the lights on as opposed to off in my brain? This is the hard problem of consciousness. To repeat, it is hard because it seems as if the standard methods of the brain and cognitive sciences, which principally involve the specification of neural mechanisms, are incapable of being deployed to solve it. Now, not everyone agrees that there is a hard problem of consciousness. Quite to the contrary, I think it's fair to say that there is a major divide within academia over whether there is in fact a hard problem. This divide, I think, ultimately stems from a fundamental disagreement in intuitions among thinkers. Some people just don't see that there is an explanatory gap between what it is like to be us and physical characterizations of the world. This is actually one of the problems with the discipline of philosophy in general. Philosophy often ends up just being a battle of brute intuitions between different minds. The intuitions class against one another in an endless war that goes nowhere. No progress is made. Philosophers just become more deeply entrenched within their respective philosophical camp as the battle of intuitions rages on. For the record, my own view of the discipline of philosophy is not as pessimistic as this. Perhaps I'll do an episode on metaphilosophy, in which I philosophize about the nature of philosophy. But I digress. Again, the point I was making is that it is controversial whether there is a firm distinction between the hard problem and the easy problems of consciousness in the way that Chalmers thinks there is. Now, assume for a second that there is a genuine hard problem of consciousness. You might be asking yourself, who exactly is the hard problem a problem for? The answer is that it is a problem for anyone who endorses physicalism, which is the theory I already touched upon when discussing methodological naturalism. There are many different kinds of physicalism, but the basic idea connecting all of them is that consciousness is nothing over and above the physical brain. Some physicalists identify consciousness with the brain, and others merely reduce it to the brain. There's a lot I could say about the concept of reduction, or what it really means to reduce one entity to another, but I'll refrain from doing that for the sake of brevity. The point I'm currently trying to make is that it is easy to see how the hard problem of consciousness threatens physicalism. For physicalism holds that consciousness is nothing over and above the brain, but the hard problem suggests that the standard methods of the brain in cognitive sciences are unable to account for consciousness. A handful of philosophers have essentially turned the hard problem into a formal argument against physicalism. One of these philosophers is, you guessed it, the man himself, David Chalmers. Chalmers is responsible for what has been called the conceivability argument against physicalism. I think it may be helpful to talk about the conceivability argument for a couple of minutes. I'll do my best to explain the argument as simply as possible, and then I'll outline the different ways a physicalist can respond to it. If you've made it this far, well, 
Just keep your seatbelt buckled and your windows up. The intellectual downpour continues. So, to understand the conceivability argument against physicalism, you first have to understand the concept of a philosophical zombie. Philosophical zombies are not quite like the zombies that one finds in movies or pop culture. A philosophical zombie is a being that is physically and functionally identical to a normal adult human being, but one that lacks conscious experience. So, a fleshy robot, for all intents and purposes. My philosophical zombie counterpart, for example, looks like me, behaves like me, acts and talks like me, and is essentially a perfect duplicate of me. But unlike me, there's nothing it is like to be my zombie counterpart from the inside. Which is to say, my zombie counterpart is not conscious. Okay, now we have all of the conceptual tools we need in order to comprehend the conceivability argument against physicalism. The conceivability argument contains just two premises. The first premise is the claim that philosophical zombies are conceivable. Now, Anyone who takes the hard problem of consciousness seriously should endorse this first premise. For to take the hard problem seriously is again effectively to think that consciousness outstrips mere functioning and behavior. And the claim that zombies are conceivable is just the claim that one can conceive of beings that are functionally and behaviorally indistinguishable from us, but that lack consciousness. The second premise of the conceivability argument is typically presented in the form of a conditional, or an if-then statement. And it reads as follows. If philosophical zombies are conceivable, then they are possible. As you might guess, this second premise is motivated by the idea that conceivability entails possibility. Now, you might ask yourself, why think this? The main reason to think that conceivability entails possibility is that it seems like conceivability is our best, if not only, guide to possibility. Take unicorns, for example. Unicorns do not actually exist, but we know that it is possible that they exist. How do we know this? Well, because unicorns are perfectly conceivable. If evolution had unfolded differently, it could have very well produced white-horned horses. Indeed, it still may in the future. There's nothing incoherent about the concept of a unicorn. The same cannot be said with respect to the concept of a squared circle, for example. Squared circles, like unicorns, do not actually exist. But unlike unicorns, it is impossible that squared circles exist. Why? Well, because squared circles are inconceivable. Indeed, the very concept of a squared circle contains a contradiction, namely, Circles by definition do not have angles, whereas squares do. The purpose of these examples, to reiterate, is to provide support for the idea that conceivability entails possibility, and thereby for the idea that the conceivability of philosophical zombies suffices for their possibility. Now, if one admits that philosophical zombies are possible, which is to say, if premise one and premise two of the conceivability argument are both true, it immediately follows that physicalism is false. How in God's name is that, you might be asking yourself. 
Well, it's all actually pretty straightforward. Again, physicalism holds that consciousness is nothing over and above the brain, right? It is controversial to be sure how exactly to interpret this nothing over and above phrase. But one thing that is uncontroversial is that the phrase posits a necessary connection between consciousness and the physical brain. That is to say, if consciousness is truly nothing over and above the brain, as physicalism says it is, then it follows that there is a necessary connection between the brain and consciousness. Meaning that, in every possible world or state of affairs where there are brains sufficiently identical to ours, there is also consciousness. This is just part of the definition of physicalism. If physical, philosophical zombies are possible, however, the connection between consciousness and the brain is contingent as opposed to necessary. Why? Well, because the possibility of zombies means that there is some possible world or state of affairs in which physical brains identical to ours exist, but consciousness does not. The fact that there is some possible state of affairs where this is the case suffices to make the connection between consciousness and the brain contingent, and therefore suffices to make physicalism false. For in order for the connection between the two to be necessary, again, the connection must hold in every possible world or state of affairs. It is for this reason that the possibility of zombies renders physicalism false. To some, then, according to the conceivability argument, philosophical zombies are conceivable, and conceivability entails possibility, meaning that zombies are possible and physicalism is therefore false. Okay, perhaps take a deep breath for a second. Let everything I just said sink in. And now ask yourself, how do physicalists respond when confronted with the conceivability argument? Do they run away in tears because they recognize they've been proven wrong? Of course not. There are, in fact, three different ways to object to the conceivability argument if you are a physicalist. The first, most radical way, is to straight up deny the existence of consciousness. The technical name for physicalists in this camp is eliminativism, because they seek to eliminate consciousness. According to eliminativists, there is no hard problem of consciousness, because consciousness does not exist. Sometimes eliminativists will say that consciousness is an illusion. Now, eliminativism is in my books patently absurd. The reason why can be found in what I have already said regarding the primacy of consciousness. Consciousness is, to my mind, the one thing in the universe that cannot be an illusion. Again, this is because there does not exist an appearance-reality gap with respect to consciousness like there does with respect to other things. The fact that there appears to be something that it is like to be me in this moment just is the fact of consciousness. Or to put the point differently, if consciousness is an illusion, then the illusion of consciousness is consciousness. Eliminativism, then, is off the table. The second way for the physicalist to respond to the conceivability argument is to concede that consciousness exists, but nevertheless reject the assertion that philosophical zombies are conceivable, and so reject the assertion that premise one, the conceivability argument, is true. The technical name for physicalists in this camp is a priori physicalism. A priori physicalists also deny that there is a hard problem but they do so for a different reason than the eliminativist.
a limitivist to recall, maintain that there is no hard problem because there is no consciousness. A prior physicalists are not this radical. Again, they admit that consciousness exists. According to them, however, consciousness is conceptually reducible to certain kinds of behavior and functioning in the brain, meaning that, according to a priori physicalism, any being that is functionally and behaviorally indistinguishable from me, namely a zombie, would necessarily be conscious. Hence the a priori physicalist's assertion that zombies are inconceivable. For what it's worth, I'm a firm believer that consciousness is conceptually irreducible to physical matter, at least to physical matter as we now know it. There is, to my mind, an unbridgeable explanatory gap between what it is like to be us and physical descriptions of the world. Indeed, it seems to me that the very fact that there is a hard problem demonstrates the conceptual irreducibility of consciousness. Suffice to say, I am not an a priori physicalist. It is worth noting at this point, I think, that the boundaries between a limitivism and a priori physicalism are fuzzy, if not non-existent. Some philosophers, myself included, contend that a priori physicalism is really just a limitivism in disguise. And it's easy to see why someone might think this. A priori physicalists, to reiterate, redefine consciousness solely in terms of functioning and behavior, and so basically deny that consciousness has an inner component. Now, for those of us that think that consciousness necessarily has an inner component, this redefining of the phenomenon on the part of the a priori physicalist is essentially equivalent to denying its very existence. Indeed, I am of the opinion that a priori physicalism collapses into a limitivism. Now, the truly remarkable historical fact in the background here is that a limitivism, or something like it, was the dominant view of consciousness in analytic philosophy for a good portion of the 20th century. Yes, you heard that correctly. The predominance of a limitivism was a part of a larger intellectual movement known as behaviorism, which essentially sought to explain the mind wholly in terms of the behavior that minded organisms exhibit. One of the most famous advocates of behaviorism was the prominent American psychologist B.F. Skinner. Now, given my views about the primacy of consciousness, it will come as no surprise to you that I find it truly mind-boggling that a limitivism or something like it was once mainstream in academia. To help convey my astonishment over this historical truth, I'd like to briefly quote the philosopher Galen Strawson, who, as it happens, is my second favorite contemporary philosopher after David Chalmers. Strawson says, quote, What is the silliest claim ever made? The competition is fierce, but I think the answer is easy. Some people have denied the existence of consciousness, conscious experience, the subjective character of experience, the what it is like of experience. Next to this denial, I'll call it the denial. Every known religious belief is only a little less sensible than the belief that grass is green. The denial began in the 20th century, and continues today in a few pockets of philosophy and psychology, and now, information technology. It had two main causes, the rise of the behaviorist approach in psychology, and the naturalistic approach in philosophy. These were good things in their way, but they spiraled out of control and gave birth to the great silliness." Quote. Needless to say, I love this quote. 
as my perspective is precisely aligned with Strawson's on this issue. Again, it seems clear to me that eliminativism and a priori physicalism are non-starters. There is, however, a final category of physicalism that is not as radical as either of these two views. According to this final category, which is formerly known as a posteriori physicalism, philosophical zombies are conceivable, but they are not possible, meaning that premise two of the conceivability argument is false, according to this final version of physicalism. The contemporary philosopher William Lichen, who I've gotten to know over the past year or so during my time at the University of Connecticut, considers himself an a posteriori physicalist. Unlike the previous two versions of physicalism, a posteriori physicalists like Lichen acknowledge that there is a genuine hard problem of consciousness, and that consciousness is conceptually irreducible to the brain. But a posteriori physicalists deny that this renders consciousness ontologically irreducible, you might say. In other words, a posteriori physicalists concede that the concept of consciousness cannot be explained in physical terms, or in terms of neural mechanisms. This is why they admit zombies are conceivable, in fact. But a posteriori physicalists maintain that consciousness itself, or the property of consciousness, is ultimately just a physical property that is nothing over and above the brain, or the existence of certain neural mechanisms. It is important, I think, for the purposes of explaining this final version of physicalism, to clearly distinguish between consciousness as a concept and consciousness as a property. Concepts are ideas that human beings apply to properties or objects that actually exist in the world. Now, I think the utility of concepts cannot be overstated. One reason concepts are useful is that they enable us to think and talk about things that are not occupying our immediate vicinity or environment. So, for example, there are dogs, or the actual friendly four-legged creatures that are running around out there in the world, right? Then there's the concept dog that we apply to these creatures, and that we can use to think and talk about them, even when there are no dogs around. Similarly, there's the actual property of consciousness that, again, exists out there in the world. And then there's the what-its-likeness concept that we have of consciousness, which refers to this property. To repeat, a posteriori physicalism, unlike the previous two versions of physicalism that we've explored here, concedes that consciousness as a concept is irreducible, but maintains that consciousness as a property, or in reality, is nothing over and above the brain. I think an analogy might help clarify the idea behind this final type of physicalism. Consider the concept of water. Water is conceptually irreducible to H2O which is to say, the concept of water is categorically different from the concept of H2O, right? I mean, think about it. The concept of water denotes the macroscopic liquidy substance that fills our rivers, lakes, and oceans, whereas the concept of H2O refers to a particular microscopic chemical compound. Now, it's safe to say that these two concepts, as just stated, are completely distinct from one another. In fact, the concept of water cannot be analyzed in terms of the concept of H2O, meaning that we could have never discovered from the armchair that water actually just is H2O. No, we had to go out into the world and conduct empirical investigation in order to discover this truth. We had to do science. Thus, while water is conceptually irreducible to H2O, 
Water and H2O in reality just represent two different ways of talking about the same fundamental thing. Which is again to say that the concepts water and H2O are different, but they ultimately refer to the same property in nature. Now, the a posteriori physicalist wants to make a similar claim with respect to consciousness and the brain. For again, the a posteriori physicalist insists that, despite the conceptual irreducibility of consciousness, consciousness is still, in reality, nothing over and above the brain, and that we can discover this truth empirically, although not from the armchair, just as we discovered the water H2O truth empirically, and not from the armchair. So, while I find a pastoral physicalism to be the most plausible form of physicalism, I still, as you might guess, find the theory wanting. And my reasons for finding it wanting, as you also might guess, again circle back to my views about the primacy of consciousness. There's a lot I could say here, but I've already rambled on more than I planned in this episode, so I'll try to keep it brief. The main thing, I think, to point out is that there's a relevant disanalogy here between the concept of water and the concept of consciousness. The concept of water, again, refers to the appearance of water, namely to the macroscopic liquidy stuff. Similarly, similarly, the concept of consciousness refers to the appearance of consciousness, namely to the fact that there is something it is like to be me. Unlike consciousness, however, and this is the relevant disanalogy, when it comes to water, there is an appearance reality gap. For water appears smooth and liquidy on the surface, right? But is in reality constituted by distinct H2O molecules. So, it's safe to say that the appearance of water does not disclose its true nature or essence. For again, its essence is characterized by an array of molecules, and you cannot see these molecules just by observing water. The appearance does not reveal the reality. Now, as we have discussed, the same cannot be said with respect to consciousness. The appearance of consciousness just is its reality. If you take this fact on board, as I do, and acknowledge that our concept of consciousness, or the what-its-likeness sense of the term we've been using, just picks out how consciousness appears to us, then it seems you must admit that the concept not only reveals its appearance, but also reveals its reality, or essence. Again, this just follows from the fact that the concept of consciousness denotes its appearance, and the appearance of consciousness discloses its reality. This idea, the idea that consciousness as a concept reveals its reality, or true nature, has been called phenomenal transparency in philosophy. And for good reason, too. For a concept is said to be transparent when it reveals the nature of the property it refers to. Now, and this is the main point here. If phenomenal transparency is true, if the what-its-likeness concept of consciousness reveals its true nature as a property, then a posteriori physicalism is necessarily false. For it would then follow from the fact that the concept of consciousness is irreducible to the conclusion that the property of consciousness is irreducible. Let me repeat that for the sake of clarity. Again, if consciousness is conceptually irreducible, as the a posteriori physicalist admits that it is, and the concept that we have for consciousness discloses its true nature as a property, as phenomenal transparency posits, then it must be the case that consciousness itself, as a property, is irreducible, meaning again that a posteriori physicalism is necessarily false. So, to summarize, 
The concept of consciousness is to my mind not analogous to the concept of water in the way the a posteriori physicalist says it is. The concept of water, to repeat, does not reveal the true nature of water. This is why it makes sense to claim that water is conceptually irreducible, despite being, in actuality, identical to H2O. The concept of consciousness, by contrast, does reveal the true nature of consciousness, which is to say, phenomenal transparency is true. This is why it does not make sense to claim, as the a posteriori physicalist does, that consciousness is conceptually irreducible, despite being, in actuality, identical to the brain. Now, one important thing that I'd like to flag here is that I am not convinced that phenomenal transparency is true. For, while consciousness does not admit of an appearance-reality gap, one could argue that our concept of consciousness, or the what-its-likeness sense of the term that we've been using here, does not accurately capture how the property of consciousness appears to us from the first-person point of view. This point actually brings the discussion full circle. For I began the episode by noting how elusive consciousness is, and by acknowledging how difficult it is to even characterize the concept of consciousness, or come up with the starting definition of it. Nagel's what-its-likeness definition may be the best concept of consciousness that we have, but perhaps this what-its-likeness concept is nevertheless too vague or too broad. Perhaps consciousness is so ineffable and so elusive that human beings are unable to accurately conceptualize it, even though we have direct, first-personal access to its reality as a property, given that its appearance is its reality. One could reject phenomenal transparency on these grounds, that is, by trying to identify a mismatch between the first-person appearance of consciousness and the conceptual schema through which we think about consciousness. I'll leave it at that, though. We have already gone deep enough down the rabbit hole for one episode. Hopefully most of this is clear enough. If it is not, the fault is of course mine. I do worry that by trying to make these complex philosophical ideas accessible, some of the nuance that may be necessary to fully understand them is being lost in translation. That is entirely possible. But I hope that enough of this was comprehensible and in some way educational. To provide a quick summary of the intellectual terrain that I've traversed here, I began by providing a definition of consciousness, and then went on a tangent about the primacy of consciousness and the different ways in which consciousness can be understood as primary. This led to a discussion of the hard problem of consciousness. After presenting the hard problem, I noted that many philosophers have essentially turned the problem into a formal argument against physicalism. One popular argument of this nature, and the one that I discussed here, is Chalmers' conceivability argument against physicalism. I did my best to explain the conceivability argument, and then outline the three different physicalist responses to it, which are, again, a limitivism, a priori physicalism, and a posteriori physicalism. As explained, I think each of these versions of the view is ultimately insufficient, although I am a bit agnostic with respect to a posteriori physicalism, given that I am not convinced that phenomenal transparency is true, as I mentioned. Generally speaking, however, I am not a physicalist, and I've arrived at this position after many years of reading and studying the topic of consciousness. Now, you might be asking yourself, what view of consciousness do I endorse? Given that I believe physicalism is false, what position do I believe is true? I'll save that answer, which is to say, 
my positive views on consciousness for another time. It's worth briefly mentioning, though, that other than physicalism, two other views in the menu when it comes to providing a solution to the hard problem are dualism and panpsychism. Now, dualism, roughly speaking, is the idea that consciousness is something over and above the physical world, in the sense that consciousness occupies a distinct, non-physical realm of reality. Panpsychism, by contrast, is the idea that consciousness exists at the fundamental level of reality as an intrinsic part of the physical world. As I touched upon at the beginning of the episode, I have an affinity for the latter view, panpsychism. In particular, I regard myself as what might be called a pan-protopsychist about consciousness. I'll leave it at that, though, and we'll come out with another episode soon that is entirely devoted to panpsychism and to my positive views on consciousness. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and appreciate anyone who has listened. Please leave a positive review of the show on iTunes if you got any value out of the material here. And stay tuned for the next episode, in which I will be discussing the philosophy and history of free speech, which could not be more timely, I think. Thanks again. The Intellectual Downpour continues. <laughs>